EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 22nd, and my colleague Toria Rainey and I talked to Henrik Selin, an associate professor at the Boston University Party School of Global Studies. Uh, my name is Henrik Selin. Uh, I'm an associate professor here in the Party School of uh, Global Studies. Uh, I'm originally from, from Sweden. Um, I was uh, born and, and raised there, and I did all of my uh, schooling and formal uh, education in Sweden and in the UK. So I lived there for the first uh, 30 years of my life. And then I moved to the United States in 2001. And as part of my work, uh, I work on environmental policy and governance. I also study um, environmental politics and policymaking in, in Europe and the European Union. All right. So what future do you see emerging in the European Union, given the socioeconomic and political transformations that it's undergoing? So that question is uh, EU-specific, not Europe in general. So it's, it's a... Okay. All right. So in terms of the European Union, I think one of the things that is important to remember is that the European Union have always changed. It has always developed. It has never, it has never been a static organization. Um, so the EU will continue to change and develop in the future as well. Uh, exactly how and what it will develop into is, is anyone's guess. The, it's clear that the EU is currently facing a number of very, very important uh, challenges um, related to financial uh, issues, fiscal issues, uh, related to uh, immigration issues, um, the potential uh, exit uh, of the UK, um, and so forth. Um, some people would say that the challenges the EU are facing now are, are unprecedented. It has never faced the kind of challenge it does now. I think that that might be might be debatable. There have been uh, major challenges in, in the past, but it's clear that uh, at, at least to to some degree, the EU is currently at at a crossroads and needs to uh, decide whether it will continue down a path of more cooperation, to some degree more supranationalism, uh, or whether it will sort of take a, a step back from uh, an ever uh, closer uh, uh, union. So kind of going off that idea of um, this shift of thinking kind of egocentrically, um, in what ways do you think that we can shift the focus to a more broad ecocentric way of thinking um, so one one of the six so often uh, or over the last five plus years often when we've been talking about um, the European Union it's about uh, crises it's about challenges that the Union is uh, facing it's about areas where the Union come up uh, short and all of the ones that I mentioned earlier are eminent examples of that, the economic crisis, uh, the migration uh, crisis, uh, uh, discontent in, in some member states, and so forth. Uh, but it's, it's also important to remember that there are actually some areas where the European Union is functioning relatively well. And one of them happens to be the area that I studied, happens to be environmental policy. 
So the, the expansion of European Union environmental policy over the last 40 years have been uh, quite astonishing. And in most cases, this has been beneficial both to member states and individuals. Um, there have been significant reductions in air pollution, in water pollution. Um, there have been um, increases in um, efficiency and uh, so forth. Uh, uh, some of that is related to the European Union. Some of that is uh, things that member states might have done otherwise. But it's clear that the EU has been a, a major driver around a lot of environmental protection um, in, in Europe. And if we sort of talk about this you know, in the context of individuals and democracy, if we look at uh, uh, sort of public, uh, public polling data in Europe, the Eurobarometer, uh, one of the areas that constantly gets uh, a lot of public support is, is the environment. If you ask people, do you think that um, the environment is an area where the European Union should get involved, you get a, a great majority of people across the Union who says yes. Uh, and who generally also support uh, more stringent uh, measures within the EU and also fairly high degrees of willingness to, uh, to, to pay for that. Um, that said, though, the EU is definitely uh, one of the challenges the EU faces moving forward is to take these initial steps of greening the EU, which have been very, very important, um, but the EU is also nowhere near where it needs to be in terms of its ecological footprint, in terms of sustainable um, development, about becoming even more uh, resource uh, efficient, about decarbonizing uh, the economy in the context of climate change and, and all of that. Um, but I also, from, from my perspective, as, as Europe is, is trying to do that, uh, it makes much, much more sense to do it collectively under the umbrella of the European Union than trying to do it individually, uh, each member state uh, by its own. I think the, if, if you're looking for uh, a, a justification for why regional cooperation is, is superior to more decentralized, then I think that the environment is a, is a very, very good example of that. So kind of going off of that idea of bringing together all of the member states and not doing it on an individual level, um, we talked a little bit in you know, formulating this project about uh, the tenets of democracy and one of them being choice. Um, so kind of building on the assumption by uh, Lohmann that what is special about democracy is that it keeps open possibilities of future choice. So kind of going off of that and I guess taking it from your ecological perspective, uh, what is your perception of democracy and what is the role that that democracy plays in shaping the future of Europe? Yeah. So uh, I am very sympathetic to the debate about the democratic deficit in, in, in the European Union. Uh, I think that um, there is, uh, or the way, at least the way it's been done in Europe, there has been a, a trade-off between uh, more centralization, doing more things at the, at the regional level, doing more things at the supranational level, which uh, uh, creates benefits of uh, you basically get efficiency 
gains sort of economies of, of, of scale. It makes much more sense to do it uh, collectively than, than individually. But the downside of that is that uh, a lot of the decision-making authority has moved from member states to, to Brussels. And this is something that we're also very much seeing in the environmental areas. Um, as more and more power has been centralized in Brussels, one of the, the, the great losers are national parliaments. Right? And national parliaments used to be very important for formulating environmental policy and responding to the wishes and the demands of the people in the various member states. Now that has been concentrated within the Commission, within the Council of the European Union, and in the European Parliament. Now the EU has tried to take steps to limit uh, um, the deficit of direct elections to the European Parliament, other ways to sort of increase transparency in decision-making, um, doing more stakeholder consultations and whatnot. But it's, it, it's hard to, to completely get around the, the point that the more, the more you centralize decision-making in Brussels, the further it's moved away from the individual in any of the uh, 28 uh, member states. So um, in the environment area and, and many other, poli- pretty much all other policy areas, I think that the EU has a, has a great challenge of trying to further uh, bridge this gap between, uh, on the one hand, uh, taking effective regional action and, on the other hand, uh, making sure that uh, the, the views and the perspective of, of individuals is, is, is reflected in what, in what Europe is trying to do. Um, what do you think the role of a European <coughs> citizen is in that case then? I think that that has, that has changed, right? Because even if we go back only 30 years, um, largely the role as a uh, concerned citizen, as an engaged citizen, was about local engagement. It was about national engagement. It was about uh, shaping national priorities. It was about electing uh, local and national leaders. Now, all of that is, of course, still very, very important. But to that, we have now sort of added the, the layer of, of the European Union. And as more and more of the decision-making authorities is moved to Brussels, that means that if you want to remain an engaged and committed citizen, uh, in addition to being focused uh, on your local community, in addition to being engaged in national politics, um, you also need to be engaged in European politics. Um, I think that that has increased the, the demands on the, the, the individual. Um, and one, one of the, the problems of the European Union is that it's an incredibly complex organization. Um, even those of us who have spent a lot of time studying um, the history and development of the European Union uh, do not all, always fully recognize how the European Union actually works. Uh, and if you're asking um, uh, people uh, in various member states, you're going to hear a lot of misconceptions, a lot of uh, ignorance about how, how the EU works. Um, and at least part of that, I would say, is that the European Union have not been particularly good. And member states, quite frankly, have not been particularly good at communicating and explaining to its citizens of how, how the EU works 
Uh, and if you want to be uh, a, a concerned citizen, how, how can you engage the, the European Union? Um, they have done some new initiatives, right? You can, you can petition the European Commission, you can petition uh, the European Parliament, you can ask them to take up issues. So in a sense, the, the tools are there, but they are very, very difficult to, to actually uh, access. So um, what would be your vision for Europe? So if you could see Europe change in any way, what do you think you would change? Right now, in March 2016, I think I would uh, say short term, it's not about how I could change Europe. I think it's more trying to prevent Europe from actually backtracking from where it is right now. One of the sort of backbones of the European project for a long time have been the creation of the single market. It has been the free movement of people and goods and services. It has been about reducing uh, border obstacles. It has been about opening up Europe. And what we are seeing more and more is uh, trying to go back to the way, the way it was before we started doing this, right? You have more and more national politicians and, and average people, too, uh, talking about the importance of border controls. It's about restricting the, uh, the free movement. Um, it's about the UK and other countries uh, demanding limitation even for new member states. There should be sort of time periods when, when, when the citizens of new member states can't move to an older uh, member state and, and receive all of the, the, the benefits that the, that the citizens of, of that country does. Um, so sort of try to, in, in, in the search for uh, a continuously uh, open, open Europe, I see that there are, there are important uh, challenges now. So uh, I think short term, it's, it, in a sense, it's more, more important to try to preserve status quo rather than thinking, thinking big. I think if we're talking about 20 or 30 years down the line, then sure, we should definitely, should definitely think big. Um, but right now, I think it's more about stopping the, the backslide. And lastly, if you were given the platform to reach common members of the European Union community um, and or the global community, what would be your call to arms? My call to arms. Can you specify that a little bit? Sure. So um, I guess what would you say to inspire European Union members or just, you know, in general, community members to make that progression forward? Okay. Uh, so one thing that happened a couple of years ago, was it 2012? I can't remember top of my head. When the EU received a Nobel Peace Prize. Do you remember what exact year that was? Was it 2012, 2011, something thereabouts? Uh, 2012. Was 2012, yeah. Uh, now we can we can argue sort of to to what degree um, um, an organization like the European Union fully meets the criteria for the Nobel Peace Prize, but I think it's it was still uh, and an important recognition that uh, as. As, as, as the EU struggles, we should not lose sight of the many, many good things that has actually happened under the umbrella of the European Union over the last 60 years. 
Uh, I think it's clear that the European Union have, in many ways, been uh, a great uh, force uh, for good. Um, it has helped promote democracy. It has helped uh, promote economic development. It has uh, helped promote environmental uh, protection. It has uh, reduced uh, barriers. Um, it promotes uh, human rights. And as we sort of think about the, the, the future of, of the European Union, I think it's uh, useful to not just think about the challenges, but the many, many good things that the European Union has actually been part of. Now, the things I mentioned, I don't think it's just because of the European Union, but I think it's clear that the European Union have been one mostly very positive influence in sort of fostering this kind of, kind of change um, across the European continent. Um, one indication of that is that after the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall in the, in the 1990s, um, the vast majority of countries that were outside of the European Union located in, in Southern and Eastern Europe made it a, a absolute foreign policy priority of trying to become a member of, of the European Union. Um, if, if, if you look anywhere in the world, there are, there are a few other organizations that, that have the kind of pull um, that the European Union does. Um, because to become a member of the European Union, um, it's a very invasive process. As a new member state, you have to adopt all of the existing European legislation. That's a big body of a key. Uh, you have to jump through uh, a large number of fairly difficult hoops to get into the organization. And the fact that so many countries have done that over so many years, I think, is, is an illustration of how useful, how beneficial they see membership of the European Union to be. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be uncritical of the European Union. That doesn't mean that the European Union can't be better. It certainly can. Uh, but I would, my sort of call to arm would say, uh, remember all the good things that the EU has done uh, and build up that to trying to make the union an even better union. I think uh, sort of just one, one related point, and it could be just because we're talking now, uh, it's the sort of um, the referendum in, in, in the UK, which I think short to medium term will have a fairly large impact on the European Union. Um, I, I am of the firm belief that I think it would be a huge mistake for uh, the UK and the European Union if the UK were to leave. I'm, I'm one of the people who think that both the UK and the EU would be much, much better off with the UK inside than on the outside. So that's my biased view. Um, but as, as I just said, a lot of countries have made it an absolute foreign policy objective to join the European Union. This is really the first time when we're seeing a member state, and on top of that, a large, very influential member state now seriously considering leaving the European Union. Um, because member states are always unhappy with parts of the EU and what the EU is, is, is doing. Um, but the, the idea that that unhappiness could come to such a level that a member state through a referendum might actually leave um, was something that 
it, it sort of existed in, in theory. It was a sort of theoretical option that this might happen. Now we're sort of faced with that choice. Um, if the UK states to dis, uh, decides to stay in, I think that that serves to really uh, strengthening the EU. If the UK decides to leave, I think that that will definitely weaken the EU. And we don't know the, the consequences of that yet. I'm sure it will have a, a ripple effect. Um, for instance, if, uh, if the UK leaves, there is a fairly good chance uh, that Scotland would push the idea of another referendum. I think there is a pretty good chance that Scotland would then vote for leaving the UK uh, and uh, becoming part uh, of the EU as an, as an independent country. But that is then one part of a member state that basically succeeds from that member states to become. Um, this, for instance, have some politicians in Spain being very, very nervous. If they can do this in um, uh, in Scotland, how would the people in Barcelona that would like to see an independent uh, country, how, how, how would that react? And it can trigger all these different kinds of uh, reaction, uh, good or bad, across Europe. So I think that's definitely something to, um, to keep a, a very, very eye, a close eye on and see how that pans out. Project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.